thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine with Julia Ravy and Harry Lewis. On today's show, we'll hear how action video games pew pew, might be getting a bad rep, why unfamiliar voices may startle you when you're fast asleep, and the importance of saliva in building special relationships. Pretty gross. Julia, fancy a kiss? Certainly not, Harry. Plus, later on, we have an expose on life without your normal sense of smell and taste. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First, though, this week, the UK government announced the end of the enhanced Plan B COVID control measures that were introduced last year in response to the arrival of the Omicron variant. Some have been sceptical about the timing, particularly given that we're still detecting around 100,000 cases per day. Chris Smith asked Edinburgh University public health specialist Linda Bald to take him through why, in her view, the government have made the decision they have. The UK government was very clear they didn't want to keep Plan B in place for any longer than necessary. And that's an important principle that they are sticking to. And what they've been looking at is a basket of indicators. The first one is what's happening with infection in the community. And they look at population surveys and private households and also cases. And you can see cases have gone down about a third over the last seven days. They're then looking at capacity in the NHS. Admissions to hospital have not gone anywhere near what was feared in some of the modelling. In fact, again, over the last seven days, they've gone down around 5%. Importantly, they're also looking at intensive care, and that has not been stretched primarily because of vaccines. So what they are concluding is that the Omicron wave has been a big wave, uh, but it's mostly been of infection and not severe outcomes, and therefore they can't keep restrictions on the population longer than they think is necessary. One point that some people have made, indeed, at one of the Downing Street press briefings, one of the journalists said, but look, we've still got very high levels of mortality. What's the reason that they're comfortable having that number of mortalities but still making these changes? I think there's a recognition that the vaccines are not 100% protective. People might be older and more vulnerable. And that, like other viruses, we may always have people who lose their lives as a result. They've never been willing to state a threshold for tolerating that. Um, but I think at this stage in the pandemic, they're recognising that there will be some ongoing harms. And also that they have to balance those up against the other accumulated harms to the economy, education, social harms, etc. Because Susan Hopkins from the UK Health Security Agency, she was also presenting this week and she alluded to, as I think did Sajid Javid, a survey that the Office for National Statistics are carrying out looking more closely at death statistics and death certificates to try to understand what really constitutes a death from COVID as opposed to a death with COVID, i.e. someone who dies of something else, but they happen to have also tested positive for COVID in the last month. That's right. And when you look at the death certificates, the analysis does suggest that at the moment it still is the majority of those people who are losing their lives are losing their lives because of the COVID infection. But there is also a substantial group for whom it's just one factor. The other thing, we've done some analysis, as has been done in England, looking at the proportion of people in hospital because of COVID or with COVID. And you can see there's now a greater proportion than earlier in the pandemic who are there with COVID. In other words, they test positive when they come into hospital rather than they're there because of COVID. I think the number that was cited was somewhere between 40 and 50%. So it's quite big, wasn't it? People who were in hospital but happened to be detected to have 
coronavirus infection, but they're not there because of it. One of the things you, you raised just now was you said intensive care beds. And, and actually, that is probably the most reassuring graph that's being presented, isn't it? In the sense that the numbers of people who are in, in ventilation facilities is now lower than it was before Omicron at, arrived on our shores. That's right. There's two really interesting features about intensive care, or many, but one of them is that the admissions are as low as they were last summer when um, you know, so-called Freedom Day was introduced in England. So again, you can see from a policy perspective that if you're focusing on that indicator, there's not a rationale to retain restrictions from the government's point of view. But let's assume that these measures, stepping back from them, is the right thing to do and we do end up back in a position where we were last summer. What should the focus shift on to? What do you think we should really dwell on next to make sure that we're as prepared as possible for next winter, but also the twists in the road that may still be yet to come? Well, I share your optimism for the next few weeks and months, but I think there's a number of factors. The first one is let's keep a close eye on waning of protection from vaccines. The JCVI said no booster at the moment. That seems definitely proportionate. There's indications from Israel that their rapid rollout of a fourth dose may not have had an impact and may not have been necessary. The second thing is looking ahead, we have to give people good, accurate advice about their own behaviours so they can protect themselves. An assessment of risk for an individual will, will vary depend on how much of a risk COVID is to you. So that might be face coverings, even if they're not mandated, distancing, thinking about avoiding crowded places, etc. And then the third thing is think about environments. So how do we COVID-proof or more improve and how we use ventilation, and how we think about working environments, offices, what we can do in schools where there's still arguably more we could do, etc. Chris Smith talking to Linda Bolt there. Now, video games get a bad rep, especially when it comes to how age-appropriate certain genres are for young children. But new research from the University of Geneva suggests that there could be some unexpected benefits to playing video games. Trisha Smith reports. I like to play video games to decompress after a long, exhausting, I mean, a wonderful and fulfilling day at the office. But did you know that playing video games could be good for children's literacy? I'm not talking about educational games either. It's action games. Call of Duty, Halo, Overwatch, even Fortnite, where you have to focus on lots of things happening at once and make decisions quickly that could make a difference. Sounds too good to be true, right? But Angela Pascolotto explained. We know that reading is uh, at its core a linguistic skill, yet it relies not only on uh, oral language abilities, but also on uh, several executive functions uh, like working memory, cognitive flexibility and inhibitory control. In particular, reading calls for an efficient extraction of the visual information from the page, uh, it puts special demands on eye movements and the attentional system. That's why attentional control is involved and is crucial in reading. And when you were testing the effect of action video games compared with a non-action video game, what were the main findings of, of that study? Training all these uh, attentional control and executive process promoted not only attentional control per se, but also reading skills in Italian-speaking children that were between 9 to 12 years old. And what is interesting to notice is that these improvements were maintained six months later after the end of the training and also influenced school grades in Italian at 18 months after the end of the training. So just by playing an action video game compared to playing a game that was not action, you're getting these improvements in reading skill? Exactly, exactly. Is that going to be the same for other languages? This is uh, actually part of what we are uh, doing right now. So the game will be adapted into German, French and English and deployed in these four languages. And the main aim uh, is that we would like to understand how to alleviate the different uh, uh, roadblocks to literacy acquisition, because all these languages are very different in terms of orthographic uh, characteristics. So the link between the sound of the language and uh, the way in which it is written is uh, very different uh, between all these four languages. And we expect our game to be beneficial, however, the extent of whether these different in terms of transparency or in the writing systems is still uh, an open question.
these benefits that you get in improving your executive functions by playing these action video games, is that a benefit that I, at the age of 28, will be seeing? Or is that something that you think happens just during the initial learning process? Luckily for us, it is something that we can expect. It happens throughout our entire life. It is due to our incredible ability of the brain to modify and reshape due to intensive training. We could expect that children who have higher brain plasticity can benefit more from this kind of training. But this doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense, even as adults, to train our brain functions. What do you think about the negative stigma that's associated with kids playing video games all the time? I'm a completely non-gamer, despite the fact that I'm uh, developing video games. And so I completely get that there is a stigma surrounding this topic. And as always, there is uh, no clear uh, specific uh, answer that we can um, give. But what we can say is that the right amount of uh, this kind of action video games is certainly producing a, a positive effect on cognition. And so it is worth to consider that there are positive impacts uh, in playing video games. The old saying of everything in moderation comes to mind there. Trisha Smith with Angela Pasqualotto and you'll find that paper in Nature Human Behaviour. From baffling British weather sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here to looking at a cheetah from the inside out games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, why unfamiliar voices may startle you when you're fast asleep. Now, though, even children as young as 8 to 10 months old can distinguish when two people have a special or thick, as it's known, relationship between them, such as being a married couple or a parent and child, if they see the two other individuals sharing saliva, including by sharing food. That is the giveaway. And when that happens, they judge those relationships to be special. Ashley Thomas at MIT used puppets to test this out on human infants. Some friendly relationships you can think of everyone you'd be willing to share an ice cream cone with. Those are people who you feel close to, but you have other friendly relationships that you don't necessarily feel so close to, but you're still very friendly with. So that's the distinction we were after. And what we wanted to know is whether infants who have very little experience in the world distinguish between those two types of relationships. Would this be sort of almost like the the relationship that a parent would have with a child versus the parent's friends would have with that child. Yeah, so that's that could be one place where there's a distinction or you could think of your coworkers versus your family. So how did you set out to test this then? We showed infants and toddlers people interacting with puppets and in one of those interactions we showed them saliva sharing and in another one of those interactions We showed them something that was pro-social or cooperative, but didn't involve saliva sharing. And then we asked, given those two different interactions, who do the infants and toddlers expect to respond to the puppet's distress or to comfort the puppet when it's upset? Now, when you say saliva sharing, do you mean literally? Uh, Yeah, I do mean literally. But in this case, we used food sharing. So again, you can think of sharing an ice cream cone with someone. You sort of accidentally share saliva, but you might not be willing to do that with everybody that you know, just people who you feel close to. And what was your hypothesis then, that if saliva sharing matters, then they'll pay more attention to the individual with whom there had been saliva sharing rather than the one there hadn't? Yes, but only when the person that they had shared saliva with was upset. Why is upset or being upset important? So just like saliva sharing happens with these close relationships, so does comforting. So you can also think about everyone who you would really like to comfort you when you feel sad. Those tend to be people that we feel close with. And there tends to be overlap with the people who you want to comfort you and the people who you're willing to share saliva with or share an ice cream cone with. And is that what happened? That is what happened. So after infants and toddlers saw that two individuals shared saliva, they expected those two individuals to respond to one another's distress. How does one sort of disentangle 
learned experience from what's innate here? So we can't actually. We tested eight to 10 month olds who are really young and don't have that much experience in the world. But we don't know what's innate and what's learned. But we do know that if anything's learned, then it had to have been learned really rapidly and quickly. And does this cross cultures? The idea that people who are close share saliva does happen in many, many different cultures across the globe. But we don't know if infants would make the same inferences in different cultures because we haven't tested that yet. And do you think that grown-ups sharing saliva or other things is part and parcel of the same underlying mechanism of kind of trust and comfort building relationships? Yeah, definitely. So one thing that's cool about humans is that we can create new types of relationships or we can change a relationship that's not so close into a closer relationship. And one way that humans might communicate this is by doing these saliva sharing actions with each other. So what do you think the implications are of this? Yeah, so I think the implications are that really early on, infants and toddlers are paying attention to the people around them. And they're not just paying attention to who's who, they're paying attention to how people are connected and who's connected. And that might allow them to figure out who else would be good at taking care of them. So the kids are watching who's snogging who to work out which relationships are the ones that really matter. Chris Smith talking to Ashley Thomas. That work was published in the journal Science. And hopefully those parents aren't using too much saliva, hey? Well, when you try to sleep for the first time in a new place, you might find it hard to settle, while tossing and turning might leave you feeling knackered in the morning. Your brain probably thinks its constant surveillance is doing you a favour. But how does your brain tell a safe noise from a real bump in the night? Well, Julia Ravy reports. Every night, we lay our heads down and slip into a state of semi-unconsciousness. Certain noises you're used to don't disturb your slumber. Even familiar voices... Julia. Julia. Like naked scientist Harry Lewis can be ignored. But if you heard an unfamiliar voice... Julia! Your eyes would most likely ping open and you would be on hyper alert. But how does our brain decide what we should wake up to and what we should ignore? I spoke to Mohammed Amin from the University of Salzburg, who investigated just that. When you're asleep, you're not completely unconscious. There is at least a very low level of monitoring the environment that is going on. And that was already evident years ago when scientists showed that the sleepers respond selectively or preferentially to their own name, which means that we can at least still have a low level of processing that enables us, even during the deepest stages of sleep, to tell the difference between different stimuli. There must be a fine balance of the brain wanting to keep us asleep, but also to not miss out on any potentially threatening situations. So how does it decide what sounds are normal and what could potentially be something that we need to be aware of? When a certain stimulus is presented, the brain responds in a way that facilitates a very low level of processing that then tells you, okay, this stimuli is normal. This is something I expect in this environment, or this is something that I don't expect. And then for a very, very, very short time, the brain goes into more wake-like activity and then decide whether to disrupt sleep or continue. And this is like, okay, it's fine. What stimuli did you use in the study? So we used also the subject's first names and other different names, but the difference is that these names were spoken by either a familiar voice or an unfamiliar voice. A familiar voice is a voice that you're used to, your, your parents, your partner, and an unfamiliar voice is a voice of someone you've never heard before. We couldn't find a very strong effect of the name, and we think that this is masked by the much stronger effect of the voice because this is probably a much simpler stimulus to process. So at this very level of voices, the brain can already tell a difference even when you're in deep sleep. Is that why when I stay in a hotel, if someone walks past the door and they speak, I wake up. But if I was at home and someone walked past my door and spoke because it'll be like my family member, I don't necessarily wake up. Is that potentially why that happens? It could be, yes. The idea is that you are familiar with with the surrounding environment. So for example, when people first sleep next to a train station, in the beginning, you always wake up when the train passes. 
And then by the time you realize that this is a familiar stimulus that imposes no danger and there's no need to disrupt your sleep. I used to live on an ambulance route in London. And exactly. when I first moved there, I was woken up all through the night because the ambulance are going past all the time. And within a few weeks, I didn't wake up to those sounds at all. So with your experiment, did you see anything similar with these unfamiliar voices? We saw something that is within the night. We realized that the brain can even learn something about the stimuli that are presented. When the brain realized that this is an unfamiliar voice, it elicits certain brain waves. And these brain waves, we saw a lot of them in the first half of the night. And in the second half of the night, so as the stimuli are repeatedly presented, these responses decrease gradually, specifically to the unfamiliar voice, which suggests that the brain is learning, oh, okay, this has happened before, but impose no danger, which means that I'm learning, I'm predicting something, I'm getting some information, and I'm comparing what I predict to what I actually get or what I, I hear. Yeah, sort of like that sound, there's nothing to worry about. You don't need to wake up from your eight hours exactly. of sleep. No point disturbing that really precious sleep that we get. Precious time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. very precious, very, very precious. What dulcet tones there at the start from Julia Ravy. If you want a meditation tape from her, then we'll give you the details later on the show of how to get in touch. That research was published in the Journal of Neuroscience. As the coldest and driest continent, Antarctica has a relatively small amount of biodiversity when compared with the rest of the world. The ecosystems which are found here, however, are now expected to begin feeling the disturbance of the growing number of ships which pass through the surrounding waters. The potential consequences on the local environment are the subject of new research by Dr Ollie McCarthy at the University of Cambridge. Harry Lewis was sent to find out more and began by asking why we're starting to see a larger number of ships pass through Antarctica in the first place. There's a process called biofouling. And that is where any part of the ship that is connected to the water gathers growth. And this is because in the seawater, there are all kinds of different larvae and early stages of different seaweeds and animals. And then it can take those to a new part of the world. Are there enough of these ships to really make an impact or is it quite a small number? So there are about 100 to 200 ships that visit Antarctica every year. Most of the ships that visit Antarctica or the Southern Ocean are going there because that's where their destination is. Like research vessels that are studying all different kinds of things related to Antarctica, whether that's ice and oceans or whales and penguins, other animals that live there, or even tourist ships that visit Antarctica. And there are fishing vessels as well. And compared to the almost 100,000 you know, commercial shipping vessels on the ocean, it's a very small proportion. However, they're still large ships and they can have quite a lot of organisms. And Antarctica is the only place in the world that has no marine invasive species. And so every ship that arrives still has a chance to introduce something new to Antarctica that wasn't already there. Which species, are there any species that we'll be familiar with that spring to mind when we're talking about these invasive creatures? Things like mussels. And so these are the same Mussels essentially is the ones you might eat in a restaurant or buy at the fish and chip shop. They grow really, really well on ships. People might also be familiar with barnacles. And there are a few different kinds of barnacles as well. And why are we worried about these being dropped off in locations that they wouldn't normally be found? So we know from other parts of the world that non-native species can have drastic effects on local ecosystems and this could be that they change the way nutrients are cycled or they could change the interactions between species so they could outcompete other species. As for Antarctica it's difficult to know exactly what effects any new species could have but we know that things like mussels and some kinds of barnacles have no equivalent in Antarctica which means that they have the potential to have a big effect. Ali I feel like the idea as well of invasiveness and us taking animals that shouldn't belong somewhere from one location to another, this is quite well recorded. So what is it that you found that differs or that expands this knowledge? 
We found that the places that are visited most often by ships in Antarctica are also the places that are changing most with climate change. So they're getting warmer. And up until now, we've thought that the temperature and the environmental conditions in Antarctica have really been almost like a protective force field, uh, preventing anything that didn't evolve in Antarctica from surviving there. But if those conditions are changing, then the potential for new species, not just to be introduced, but to actually survive and to thrive, is changing as well. Ollie McCarthy there with the British Antarctic Survey. She was speaking with Harry Lewis. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. Right now, you're with your favourite science show. That's, of course, The Naked Scientist with me, Harry Lewis and Julia Ravey. Next up, we're taking a deep dive into how your smell and taste work. We'll be hearing from someone who suffers from a condition called phantosmia, how we can normalise smell training and maybe we'll get a spoonful of scientific cooking workarounds designed for those suffering from smell and taste disorders. To get us started, it's Harry Lewis. The festivities of the Christmas period are well and truly over. It almost feels criminal to bring them up again. But I'm sure you can easily recall the indulgent spreads and generous glasses of bubbly. It's a good thought, isn't it? Well, for a growing subsection of the population, it might not be. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, more and more people have been left with a distorted sense of smell and taste. Out of our five senses, these two definitely seem to rank as the least important, and research is fairly limited in comparison to, let's say, eyesight. Two years on from the initial spread of the virus, what do we know about these mysterious disorders? I've come to Future Dreams House in King's Cross to have a good nose at our senses with Barry Smith, Professor of Philosophy at the University of London and co-director of the Centre for the Study of the Senses. So I think we need to start with the idea that, you know, we all uh, enjoy food and we all enjoy eating, but what happens when eating goes wrong? What happens when you can't get the experience and the enjoyment out of food? And that can happen for a number of reasons. Now, we all know about COVID has uh, very often left people with no sense of smell. And when they lose the sense of smell, they suddenly realize how big a contribution that was to tasting the flavors in food, because all the tongue will give them is salt, sweet, sour, bitter, savory, umami, But everything else, you know, pineapple, mango, melon, the difference between chicken and pork, that's all coming from the nose. As Barry alluded to, smell and taste can be affected by a diverse range of conditions and circumstances. You might find it surprising to hear that head injuries, dementia and even chemotherapy treatments can result in a lasting alteration to our sense of smell. And it's our nose that does some of the really heavy lifting when it comes to exploring flavour, as Barry explains. Now, when we're eating food, we're using our tongue to get taste, we're using our nose to get the smell and aromas of food, and we're also using this other thing, the trigeminal nerve. That's the fifth facial nerve that serves the eyes, the nose, and the mouth, and it's the one that rings bells when you have too much wasabi, and you feel it at the bridge of your nose. Ow! Now, sometimes when people are undergoing uh, treatment, that's completely muted, and we saw that with COVID too, that people said, I could eat a whole jar of mustard and no tingle, no response. But what we're now seeing is that people recovering from smell loss have a week or two where they think their sense of smell is restored and normal, and then they're developing this very, very disturbing condition called parosmia. And parosmia is the distortion of familiar smells. So that things you liked, like coffee or chocolate, now become disgusting. I mean, really, really disgusting. Best description I've had from a patient of how coffee is with parosmia is, it's like fruity sewage. Now, nobody's going to have that. So if somebody else is sat at home right now, and they're listening, and they think to themselves, I think I'm suffering from this, 
what are those flavours that are likely, what are the patterns of those flavours that are likely to be affected, all those food or drink items? We know that it's coffee, we know it's roasted meats, it's onions, garlic, eggs, uh, even toothpaste, surprisingly enough, minty toothpaste. So a lot of people have switched to uh, cinnamon-flavoured toothpaste. Cinnamon seems OK. So by, by finding out which foods are really unpleasant, we learn which are the trigger foods and which are the safe foods. Someone who has been figuring out those safe foods all by herself is Claire. When I spoke to her, she did tell me that her condition differs slightly from the symptoms described by Barry. Yes, so Christmas Eve last year, myself and my partner both tested positive for COVID. It was a little bit frustrating because we had basically been sort of living like hermits for the sort of previous eight weeks. And um, yeah, it's kind of changed my life, really. If you'd have said, a, you know, four, fast forward a year, I'd have been in this position, I would never have believed you. Mm. And what is that position? What is it that resulted after COVID? I realised that sort of my smell and taste had uh, departed and I'd kind of hang on to the hope of the six to eight weeks that everybody was telling me that it would bounce back. But as I've gone past each milestone, actually, it's now two months, three months, four months. And I'm kind of two weeks away from it being a year or just under two weeks. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are in that situation where they, they lost their sense of smell and their sense of taste and it returned. But for you, something different happened, didn't it? So they term it as phantosmia. So, so I've ended up having a smoke smell that can, it can come on via a headache and it'll be with me 24-7 for a week, two weeks. It'll wake me up in the middle of the night. It'll make my eyes water. So when I'm on sort of Zoom calls or Teams calls with meetings, it's kind of a little bit embarrassing because it can look like I'm about to start crying. You know, the number of things I've burned both on the hob and in the grill, oh, I mean, it's in the tens. Um, yeah, so I don't leave anything unattended because you just can't smell it. So, yeah, it is frustrating. Alongside this phantom smell, Claire also experiences the symptoms of parosmia. Out of curiosity, I asked what she missed the most. Oh, a lot, yes, lots of things, really. Um, just being able to sort of smell my home, being able to sort of smell the outdoors if you go outside. You're, you know, I can't sort of smell my partner because we all have sort of, you know, if you yeah. put sort of hat shave on. Um, oh, I miss all sorts of food. I can't eat meat. Yeah, there's just all sorts. Coffee. Coffee. I haven't had a coffee now for a year. I long to have a latte. I'd love to have a nice Costa latte, but I can't because it just when my when the coffee machine is going downstairs, um, I have to hold my nose because it makes me gag. So I don't know what it is about coffee and chocolate. Chocolate, I miss the creaminess of a bar of chocolate, a galaxy bar of chocolate, just to be able to get depth. So yeah, I can't get any depth in any food. It's oh. so frustrating. Claire, it sounds like you're, you're speaking of a lot of people's worst nightmares there. Sounds absolutely awful for Claire. I was also really surprised to hear that taste and flavour are different. Well, Julia, here to help us answer those types of questions is Carl Philpot. He's Professor of Rhinology and Olfactory at University of East Anglia, and he also established the first UK smell and taste clinic. Carl, can we start off by trying to distinguish? I mean, is there a difference between taste and flavour? Yes. So uh, flavour is really the combination of smell and taste together, whereas uh, taste from a medical perspective is simply what we experience from the tongue and the other locations of taste buds in the mouth and the throat. And is there a way for us to do this in the studio, for us to distinguish between these two types of, uh, types of thing? Absolutely, yes. So uh, we can do something called the Skittle test. Uh, and uh, I have and a big a... pack of Skittles here with me. Um, let me let me quickly <laughs> hand one over to Julia as well whilst we're here. Be rude to leave her out. And that's for me. Oh. What do we do next, Cole? Okay, so first thing is to pinch your nose so that you know, there's no air flowing through your nose. And then yep. when you've done that, you can place the Skittle inside your mouth. Go on then, Julia. In that um, goes. Yep. And let it sit there for five to ten seconds just to sort of start dissolving and, and get an idea of what it is you're tasting. I mean... Sugar? Sugar, yeah. It's sweet, very, isn't it? very specific to one part of my tongue as well. If you unle- uh, un- sorry, release your um, hand from your nose to let the air flow through your nose, oh, you should yeah. now experience what it's the flavour of the sweet is. 
I've been waiting to eat these all show as well, Carl. So suddenly I'm getting that blueberryness come through, and it's fantastic. What about you, Julia? Yeah, yeah the orange is there. It's strong. around the whole mouth as well. That's what I'm experiencing. It's not just on the tongue, but it's actually kind of coating the inside of my mouth. So what's happening now is you've got a process uh, that we call retronasal olfaction taking place, and that's basically the smell of the food inside your mouth, and you're breathing it back out through your nose from the back of your mouth. So it's the reverse of when you sniff things from the outside. And for people with parosmia, what's happening? So for um, parosmia, obviously, they're getting the same uh, signal that you and I would get in, in normality, but the information as it's sort of picked up in the smell receptors is then being interpreted incorrectly. Uh, and we think that's largely because some of the smell receptors aren't working properly, so you're only getting part of the jigsaw. And, and so and it's always unpleasant generally, unfortunately. I don't know why that's unpleasant, but it generally, a few people get a pleasant uh, parosmia, but most people get unpleasant parosmia. Now that you're seeing a few people are getting it, how many people are we seeing since COVID began develop these symptoms? Is it a lot? It is. So um, of the people who get infection uh, with COVID-19, about 60% get um, smell and taste loss as a symptom. Of those, about 10 to 15% go on to have persistent symptoms that last more than four weeks. So if you multiply that by the number of infections we've had in the UK so far, we're talking somewhere close to a million people. And of those million people, we think about 50% of those, based on the work of our global studies, uh, are getting parosmia, this, this smell distortion, if you look at them six months on from the time of their original infection. Increasingly, we see more and more younger people and now children being affected by these, these uh, smell disorders. And uh, for the first time, I've been seeing teenagers in my clinic, which um, I've never seen teenagers with viral smell loss in the last two decades. So that's a really new phenomenon that's COVID's produced. How many are we talking about? Well, I could only say really it's probably one or two a month at the moment. But given that, uh, you know, say I'd never seen them before, that's, that's quite significant. And, and also through our charity, Fifth Sense, we get a lot of people getting in touch with the charity looking for support. And again, they're parents of children and some are even under the age of 10. So it's surprising how young some of these people are that are being affected, which is incredible. I wonder uh, what people that are suffering can do. I know there's been a lot of talk about smelling oils and I have a short clip of Claire again giving it a go at home. One thing I've been doing since I lost my smell and taste probably about six weeks in is smell training. So I basically just purchased a set of 20 oils, essential oils um, from Amazon and effectively what I do is a couple of times a day morning and evening is just take short sniffs of each of the oils. I guess when I have bad weeks, I tend to not do it so often. And when I kind of feel a bit more focused, then I do sort of try it. The one thing I find sort of probably discouraging is that I rank the smells, the bottles in the box based on how well I can smell them. Uh, and it's interesting, just over time, very few have moved up the scale and most of them have largely stayed in the same ranking. For example, smells like um, bergamot, rosemary and ginger, I can't really smell in the essential oils. And then cinnamon, clove, eucalyptus and lemongrass are probably the strongest scents. I also wander around the house smelling things from the herb shelf, I'll smell sort of toiletries uh, and I guess I'll kind of, there are certain things I'll sort of keep smelling just to sort of check back in. And, and I, I must admit, I do get quite excited when I get a bit of a stronger smell because the one thing I have noticed is there's not much depth in a lot of the smells. So when I do certainly find something that there's some depth in, the joy is just unbelievable. So, um, yeah, I just try and continue to do this as as regular as I possibly can. That was Claire there talking about the different essential oils that she's been smelling. Carl, for those people that are suffering, is this something they should be doing or is there certain treatments they can be doing at home? So, yes, I mean, a smell training is an established sort of rehabilitation technique that's uh, had good evidence over the last 10 years. It doesn't work for everybody, but it's worth a try because it's simple to do. And the key message is you don't need to go out and buy anything expensive to do it. The things in your cupboard uh, can be used to help you do it. And the, and the, the central message is four things uh, twice a day for one or two minutes. Um, there should be things that you were familiar with before you had your problem. And uh, if you go to the Fifth Sense website, our charity's website, there's, there's lots of information there about how you can go and do this on a each simple and easy basis every day. 
and it's sticking with it. You've got to really got to stick with it for up to a year. In reality, the, the, the real studies show that the benefits come from longer term uh, determination with the technique and changing the smells every three months. Carl, Claire wants to know, she's been now with a altered sense of smell for a year. Is phantosmia something she's likely to have to live with for the rest of her life? So these smell distortions like parosmia and phantosmia do tend to be self-limiting. There is a range, but but they do tend to get better with time, so they tend to sort of fade out. Uh, I'm always talking to people about, um, you know, once once the problem's gone beyond three months and it sort of looks like it's a fairly established problem, then it's worth sort of engaging with um, with treatment, whatever that treatment that may be. The biggest problem we have in this field is that there's real a real paucity of good quality clinical trials to underpin any treatment. So. Most of the things that have been tried have been done so in, in sort of studies that don't really have the sufficient scientific rigour, and that's one of the things I'm trying to correct with my work going forwards. So it does tend to get better, but it, it's pretty miserable while people are experiencing it. And Cole, is there any other research that's on the horizon that people might be using for treatment in the future? Yes. So uh, we're just about to start a trial using vitamin A drops, and that, that's sort of a three-month course of treatment. So we're looking sort of compared to a placebo to see if there are changes in the brain uh, in the areas where smell signals are received as a consequence of doing so and uh, hopefully we'll take that into a further trial if that's successful. And why vitamin A? Um, So it's thought the vitamin A, the retinoic acid component of vitamin A is potentially involved in the uh, DNA repair process allowing the receptor cells to potentially regenerate. Carl Philpott from University of East Anglia, thanks very much. Smell is obviously a major part of our lives and here to discuss why we take it for granted is the chair of the Global Consortium for Chemosensory Research and Assistant Director of Monell Chemical Sensors Centre, Valentina Palmer. So circling around what Claire said earlier, I was surprised that the two things she misses before she even mentioned food were her house and her partner. What are the main things that smell is used for that we don't commonly think of? That is a very good question and can be quite common among people who lose their sense of smell or experience distortion to notice these things for the first time. We can really think about the support of eating behavior and nutrition in general. So smell kind of tickles our appetite and allows us to appreciate, as Carl was saying, you know, all of the differences in the foods that we're eating and we are enjoying generally. The second big important function is warning and protection from hazards that we can find in the environment. Simple thing that may have happened to most of us. You have a carton of milk in the fridge. You don't know when exactly you opened it and you use your nose to detect whether it is spoiled or not. And the third one, which may be the most surprising, is social communication. So imagine the odor of your partner, as as Claire was saying. It's infused of some positive and familiar sensations of memories, like it's a calming effect. But social communication doesn't stop to mating and finding a partner and, you know, a good match in, in the modern world. But it also refers to newborns and mothers and, you know, bonding at the very early stages of life, because we do know that the sense of smell is one of the most functioning senses at birth and even prenatally. It's uh, fully developed in utero. Claire also mentioned, you know, how depressing it can be. And she said to Harry that before the pandemic, um, she was never anxious, but now she's prone to bouts of anxiety. Is that normal? Do a lot of people suffer from that? Yeah, unfortunately it is. And uh, the reason, you know, when we look at the brain and where the olfactory system is, then we also understand why. Because the olfactory system is tightly connected with the limbic system. And the connection in particular between these olfactory bulbs that I mentioned is linked with depressive symptoms. And so people then tend to have a reduction in the size of the olfactory bulb. They also tend to show more depressive symptoms. And we do see in people that improve their levels of depression, their olfactory abilities also increase back again. So we can see that there is a tight link uh, in particular with depression. We were wondering, is there any way in which she can help, you know, she can improve her mental health? Self-compassion is is a big part of this process. So like keep working on your sensory training and keep, you know, monitoring your sense of smell so that you can detect like the tiniest changes in the positive direction. 
know that you're not alone. There are plenty of other people, uh, unfortunately, in your situation at the moment. And then give yourself a pat in the back because you're doing, you know, you're putting a lot of effort in trying to improve this situation that, you know, if you had control over it, you would not be in. And just briefly, is our ability to smell something that we should be paying closer attention to? And if so, how should we be monitoring it? This is a very good question. Like usually we do not think about our smell, as I mentioned, in our our day. And so we saw this was very important in the COVID-19 pandemic. It took a long time to put like the sense of smell on like among the symptoms to uh, to look for. And so with colleagues at the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia, we developed a, a rapid test, the Sentinel, that helps us actually detect very quickly what is the function of different aspects of olfaction. Usually we think about, can I identify the odor that I'm smelling? But this is not everything that the olfactory system can do for us. And so we are using Sentinel with the idea in mind of proposing universal smell testing. I'm pretty sure that all of us or most of us have been tested for vision, for audition, at least once in our lives. But doctors, like any doctors, usually uh, propose to us to do a smell test to check on our well-being and our health. So our idea at Monel is that having a smell test that is rapid, Sentinel takes really one minute, two minutes. It's really fast. It's easy to do. People can do it on their own. can actually help us monitor like a how the changes in our sense of smell and this is going to be very helpful in detecting several diseases down the road. So we actually have one of your sentinel tests here which allow you to monitor your sense of smell over time and Harry is going to do a little live demo for us. If I turn over my leaflet there's three different squares and they each have a plastic peel over them so I'm getting rid of them and then I can actually a bit like an old scratch and sniff book start smelling the different boxes and I'm getting told by the app to go through and label which one is the strongest. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a go at this whilst the next section of the show plays and at the end I'll tell you my results. Thanks to Valentina Palmer and her Sentinel smell test. We're discussing how important our sense of smell is to our well-being We want to know how you alleviate some of the pressure when your senses aren't functioning as they once did. Harry went to the Life Kitchens London base, a non-profit cookery school for people who've been affected by cancer or now COVID, to find out if there is a way of injecting some joy back into food. Back now to Future Dreams House in King's Cross, a breast cancer support centre to meet Ryan Riley from Life Kitchen in their specially kitted out showroom. Those new potatoes that you can hear gently simmering in the background will make an appearance slightly later on. When I was 18 years old, my mother was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer and I was her primary carer for two years and there was just this moment towards the end of her life when treatment was really the only thing keeping her alive where food just became a necessity but not one that she cared to indulge in. All of the taste was gone. There's this famous story of us all at a family um, lunch where she bit into an onion, what she thought was an apple, and she couldn't tell the difference. It was that bad for her towards the end. And then, at the same time, I met Professor Barry Smith, and there was just this element where I thought, I think if we launch something together, where we do a cookery class, it could be a really exciting moment to help someone rediscover their, you know, their love of food and that little bit of pleasure. Ryan and Barry wanted to create somewhere or something that could help everyday people who are suffering with smell and taste-related conditions to be able to find affordable, everyday alternatives, their workarounds. They won't restore the previously experienced flavours that have been lost, but they may allow those suffering to explore new ones. One of the things that is always there is texture and temperature. And so again, this is something that Ryan has... has, uh, experimented with, contrasts in temperature, contrasts in textures, those will still make what would otherwise be a very boring and dull eating experience a bit more interesting. And one of the, one of the things that really is the sort of major tool to use is the use of foods with umami. Umami is one of those uh, tastes, basic tastes, along with salt, sweet, sour, bitter, which, which a lot of people in the West don't recognize. In Japan, umami would be as obvious as salt or sweet. You know, the dishes that have it, they can be mushrooms, they can be tomatoes, they can be Parmesan cheese. 
So there's a huge range of things. Think of soy sauce. That's that meaty taste that we get in it, which is not just saltiness, it's meatiness. And you get that in mushrooms, you get that in soy sauce. That is umami. This loan word from Japanese is hard to translate directly into English, but suggested equivalents include savoury, essence, pungent, deliciousness and meaty. It's also said to involve all the senses, with connotations of emotion and spirituality. One thing we can be certain of is that both Barry and Ryan are obsessed with it. It's the one thing I will never stop talking about, because if you want to add more flavour to your food, whether you're living with cancer or Covid or any other reason, just get that umami hit in there. Add a bit of marmite into your spaghetti bolognese. Add a bit of miso into your mayonnaise on a sandwich. An egg mayonnaise sandwich with some miso through that meal just adds that real beautiful savoury kick and a touch more saltiness. And salt is often really demonised in life, but actually it's the difference between a good and a bad dish, and umami is the difference between a good dish and an excellent one. And that being said, Ryan, that's what we're going to do right now. You've got a recipe lined up. We've got the potatoes in the pan. They've been bubbling away. What are we doing at the moment? What's in front of us? See, this for me is my favourite dish in the whole book. It's called miso butter potatoes with green chilli vinegar. Now, when we were talking earlier about how you can't have recipes with garlic and onions at the core, that would scare most people. But actually, it's the key again. If you can add a base of umami-rich like beginnings, then you'll really kind of not miss the garlic and onion base. So for this, we've got some beautiful new potatoes, and they're lovely and hot. And then it's going to, I've just drained them, going to drop them into the pan. And then we're going to do like a classic bit of cookery by just adding a lot of butter. It is really an important part. We're going to get some miso in there. Now miso comes in so many different forms. It's brown, it's white, it's red. But what at the core is um, this beautiful um, like fermented soybean. And we might add a little bit more. The thing about cookery and the thing about when you've lost your sense of taste, you are looking at how you can adjust for personal preference. So kind of forget the ingredients book, start from scratch and kind of go back to cooking at its core. You figure out what the guidelines are. Yeah, Nigel Slater once says that um, a recipe you should cook once or twice and then you should go off on your own. Because if you get the basis in, you then realise what works for you. You know, both me and you standing here now have different tastes. So how can a recipe fit that? So you get that core, and then suddenly you've got the basis. Just don't swap out the miso. And I'm just about to add a little bit of soy sauce and a little bit of pepper. So that's three types of umami already. And it's not like we've used anything that unusual. Smashing it down there just to really get those flavours in. Um, so we're going to be moving on to this green chilli vinegar. And that, again, is playing into so many of our other senses. And it starts by chopping some coriander, parsley and mint. In goes the chilli. I'm going to get this into a bowl now. And now, my favourite part here is we're going to use really cheap malt vinegar. So we've got all those herbs, we've got that vinegar. In they go. And I'm going in, we're using lots of it here. And I think we should serve this up. I think we should serve it up, Ryan. Great idea. We should, but I'm going to give you one warning. Um, when we tested it, there was a lady who had COVID and her housemate didn't. She loved this dish and her housemate said it was so strong that it nearly blew her head off. Now, the <laughs> thing for me is I love flavour. I love powerful, real amazing flavour-packed food. So I hope you can handle it. I can't think of a time that I've ever tasted malt vinegar in that way yeah, and in that it manner. It adds to it. It's not just the seasoning of the potato. Yeah, it really brings together the whole dish. It has a new dimension. And it is that malt vinegar, slightly different, but it hits the palate really strong at the beginning, but that flavour lasts. And I don't, I don't think that's too much. That hasn't blown my head off. I'm going to go in for but more. it has blown your mind, right? <laughs> it's blown my mind. I mean, it really was powerful. The team at Live Kitchen have put together a book of simple recipes designed around those who are burdened with prosmia but live in the usual fast-paced lifestyle that we're all used to. It's called Taste and Flavour and it's free for all those who need it. You can download a digital copy online which will also help fill you in on what's happening to your sense of smell and taste. Armed with this compact little recipe book, 
I went back to Claire and asked her to give one of the recipes a go for me. So I tried the cherry and almond uh, tartlet. And we were chatting over text and it was because you fancied something sweet, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And how did it work out? Um, so, I mean, I guess the recipe was really sort of easy to make. Um, the only thing I would say, I got the slightest um, hint of taste with the cherry. Yeah, while the syrup was cooking, I could sort of smell a little bit. You know, I could smell the orange coming out in it. And I thought, oh, this looked quite good. But um, yeah, the finished product, I could just taste a bit of the cherry uh, in the sort of in the tart. But yeah, I mean, I didn't let it put me off. And certainly I'm going to try the lemon and Zadar feta twists, I think. So I'm going to have a go at them this weekend. But my other half said it was really tasty, so it didn't really help. (laughs) Maybe it didn't work out for Claire on this occasion, but that's okay too. As Ryan mentioned, we all have unique differences when it comes to our sense of smell and our sense of taste. Claire did tell me that she's not deterred. She's buying the ingredients for the corn soup and potato dish that I'm so fond of. And I think her honesty throughout this process has been fantastic because if you're suffering from a similar condition, you'll know probably all too well it doesn't always work out on the first go, but it might on the next. Pretty powerful stuff there. And the results are in from our own Sentinel smell test in the studio. Harry? Yeah, that's right. What I've had to do is I've had to say which of the three smells I have in front of me is strongest. I've then had to say how intense that smell is. And then I've been given selections on my mobile phone to try and identify it. On this occasion, I've got the answer right. So I was right. It does smell like oranges. It's pretty strong. So if you monitor that over time, see how the intensities change, you can basically see if your smell's deteriorating at any point in your life. Interesting stuff there from Valentina. Now, we do have time for something completely different. It's our question of the week segment and we have James Tiptoe helping Michael shine the spotlight on our twinkling astrological neighbours. What makes stars twinkle and what can their colours tell us about them? Well, Michael, if twinkle twinkle little star is anything to go by, you're not the only one wondering what they are. Fortunately, Dr. Jennifer Millard from the Awesome Astronomy podcast is here to help us figure that out. Stars twinkle only to those looking at them from Earth. In space, their light would be steadfast. They twinkle due to turbulence in our atmosphere, which can be caused by wind, hot air rising or cool air sinking. This turbulence changes the starlight's path from a straight line causing it to bounce and bump around the atmosphere. Though we might enjoy gazing at shining stars, our atmosphere can make it difficult for astronomers to observe them. This problem can be solved by using equipment located in high altitudes or even in space. For grounded telescopes, astronomers have a clever way of countering the turbulence. By using lasers, we can create fake stars in the sky and compare them to the real stars in the sky. We can then use this information to try and account for all the atmospheric turbulence causing stars to wobble about in real time and give us much sharper, crisper images. So that explains how they twinkle. But what about the colour of a given star? Well, according to Jenny, that's caused by their respective surface temperatures. Most common stars in the night sky exist by fusing hydrogen into helium, and we call these main-sequence stars. Just like when we heat metal, we see it go from red hot to orange to white. The fusion inside the star heats up the surface area and produces the colours that we see. Redder stars are comparatively cool, yellower warmer, and blue the hottest. So the stars that have lots of these fusion reactions within them produce a blue colour on their surface area, whereas the cooler stars that have fewer fusion reactions glow red. It's true that more massive stars have greater gravitational forces trying to crush the molecules together, and so they must burn through their hydrogen fuel more ferociously, making them hotter. However, once a star runs out of hydrogen fuel, this mass-temperature relationship breaks. Very big stars, like Betelgeuse, they appear red because they have used up all the hydrogen to react with. Their new fuel source makes them puff up and cool down. There you have it. Stars twinkle because of our atmosphere getting in the way of the light they emit, and the colours are based on the reactions going on inside them. Michael, hopefully we've put that lullaby to bed for you. Next week, we'll be tackling the question of... How do they stop the mirror on the Hubble telescope 
from getting dirty. I suppose the answer isn't going to be a very, very long brush. But if you know the answer, you can get involved. You can join the debate on our forum, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, or as ever, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. And that is it for today. But your favourite science show will return next week, where we'll be doing some serious digging. Over the past two years, we've kept our ear to the ground, scraping together evidence to try and pinpoint the origins of the virus SARS-CoV-2. What research has been conducted? What does the virus tell us? And what more needs to be done to get to the bottom of where it came from? The origins of COVID-19 next week with The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravey. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.